This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who do we have on the show today? Sarge, we've got a very special guest today. His name is Xavier Calgaro uh, and he is a civil engineer working for a boutique engineering firm called Miller Merrigan in Melbourne. After finishing school, Xavier completed a double undergraduate degree in engineering and commerce at Monash University. Uh, and during his studies, Xavier was really active in his co-curricular uh, activities and experiences where he spent a semester studying abroad at the LEA uh, in Sweden and undertaking various work experiences, uh, including one at Lighten Contractors, which is now called uh, CPB. While working at university, Xavier commenced work at Miller Merrigan in 2015 uh, and has been working there ever since. And we're really excited to hear all about that uh, and his other experiences. Xavier, welcome to the show, mate. G'day, Luke and Sarge. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Not a problem. Um, it's really good to have you on. Uh, you're the first civil engineer that we've spoken to. Uh, so why don't you kind of take us through through what a day in the life of a civil engineer is kind of more in, in the junior um, aspects of it. Uh, and that, that's probably a good place to start. So yeah, what, what do you do, mate? Well, there are quite a few different types of engineering. Uh, specifically, I'm a civil engineer, but even that there are, there are a range of different avenues that a civil engineer can take. Um, I am in land development, so we deal with the design and the construction of basically anything underground. So it would be roads, drainage, sewer, water, uh, electricity, gas, all, all the services. So we basically go from a, a parcel of land, it's the big farm, and we chop that up, put all the services underground, and then our clients will sell an empty block as like a house and land package. Uh, so that that's my type of engineering, uh, but uh, yeah, as I said, that it can civil engineering can, can range from residential house construction to commercial construction, building bridges, train lines. Uh, yeah, there's a, a variety of things. So you yeah. guys sort out everything underneath the ground um, for your clients. What does that actually? What does that process actually look like? So. Our company, Miller Merrigan, do everything from town planning all the way to delivery and our landscape architecture. But our the department I'm involved in, which is the civil engineering, we get some direction from the servicing authorities. So that may be Yarra Valley Water, for example, as to how they want the set out to be for the services. Then our design team will uh, do a detailed design about uh, on AutoCAD whether that be the sewer or the water, also recycled waters becoming uh, prevalent these days. And then once those designs are finished, it gets handed over to me and I'm in the construction side of things. And my job is to send that out for tender, get it priced by a range of different contractors, uh, negotiate with them, and then engage them on behalf of our client to actually put it in the ground. And that's where my role really starts in terms of supervising on site and basically making sure that they're keeping on track with construction, keeping to costs and uh, do the job properly because there's always a contractor or two trying to cut corners and at the end of the job, it's, uh, where I sign off on it basically to say that it's in the ground properly and, and nothing's going to go wrong. 
Well, I think there's a few different things I think that we yeah. are keen to touch on there. Um, just quickly, what, what, what's AutoCAD? I've heard that ah, spoken cool. around quickly. Yeah, what's that? So AutoCAD's a program uh, on the computer which basically allows you to design um, and it, it goes into th- – you can do 3D work as well so that when you design something like a sewer – it doesn't only give you the plan view from the top, it can give you cross sections and depths and it's quite a complex uh, program and I'm no expert in it. I'm not a designer, but uh, yeah, it's really interesting to get a couple of years experience in that and seeing what it can do. Very powerful program and used all, all throughout the industry. So that, yeah. that conceptualizes what would actually then get built? Yes, correct. So they, they build all, they design through AutoCAD and then it gets output and we send it through to the authorities. If it's, we're talking about a council roads and drains, we send it through to the, the council or if it's Vic Roads, it goes to Vic Roads and so forth. And then they'll review it, approve it. And then once it's approved, that's when the plans come through to me. And for a standard subdivision, it might be 20 or 30 uh, PDF plans that come through to me. I could quantify them and then get them priced basically. Zav, you spoke about just before that you're kind of the person that, um, or, or uh, civil engineers rather, are people that sign things off at the end and, and say that this is okay and the, the engineering is spot on for this theoretically to work. Yeah. Um, what is that responsibility like? And I know that say there's a lot, a lot of moving parts with these projects, be they, you know, the landscaping to, or whatever, to actually cut the blocks and then the architects to, to design the buildings and then the, the carpenters and the builders come in and build them. What is the responsibility like to have to coordinate all of those um, aspects of the project and then know that you're the one that has to go, okay, this is all good to, to sign off at the end. It's really interesting you ask that because we, it's a point of discussion in the office quite often. Um, technically, I don't sign off that the pipe in the ground, for example, is going to be there forever and it's going to work. My job is to ensure that the contractor has the correct processes in place. So I go to site and I make sure that they have checklists and um, appropriate QA processes that say we're going to check every pipe, we're going to check every bit of rock that comes to site because I can't be there at site all day, every day. So I probably go to each site maybe once or twice a week. I do an audit on their processes to make sure that they've got the correct processes in place. And then at the end of the day, they put it in the ground and they also have to sign off to it. So although it might sound like a lot of the liabilities on on my head, it really isn't as long as I do my due diligence in checking that they've done theirs basically if something goes wrong with the pipe in the ground or the road um it's on them they've built it as long as i can prove that i checked that they had the right process in place whether they actually um whether they actually followed those processes it's on them so there are some roles where the civil engineer sign off is quite daunting because you're the be all and end all. And that might be a structural engineer for a house or an apartment complex. Uh, I'm fortunate in the fact that mine isn't so much, uh, yeah, it's not the liability isn't, isn't that scary because they still, they're still responsible for it. So you're signing off on the process. Correct. Yeah. I'm signing off on the process. The only time I really sign off on the actual construction of it is when it comes to concrete. So we do an inspection prior to concrete being poured, whether that be for footpath or curb, and that's when we sign off. And if the concrete breaks, then um, if I've got proof that everything was done properly, 
then I'm sort of covered and it's got to be another yeah. reason for it. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, when you're like your, your day to day, you're, you're obviously signing off on things, but um, like, are you, are you more out um, at site? Are you more out in the office? Um, what does that look like? Yeah. So it, it varies in summer. I'm a lot more out on site one because I want to be, but also cause there's more work. Yeah. But my role, the sign-off is a small part of my role. The majority of it is managing the contractors on site. I like to joke that I'm a, I'm a glorified babysitter sometimes. <laughs> um, but I also act as a form of mediator. So a lot of my job, unfortunately, has confrontation. So I spend time negotiating with contractors. They will submit a variation or ask for extra money for certain things because there's always unknowns in projects, whether it's contaminated ground or unknown, unknown services. There's always something that's unknown. And then my job is to assess the extras they submit, negotiate with them as best I can, and then present that to the client. So I actually had a pretty pretty interesting day yesterday pretty stressful to be honest because there was a, a huge extra submitted by a client by a contractor sorry um, extra being can you just describe what that is cost so right. the contract values i don't know two and a half million and there was a an extra of about three hundred thousand dollars the contractor submitted to me that was unforeseen we did, mm-hmm. there is definitely an extra needed because the soil was contaminated uh but that was a huge amount. So I basically spent six or seven hours on the phone between them and some geotech engineers just trying to work out exactly what the value should be. And then I had to speak to the client and sit him down and say, by the way, there's a 200 grand, 250 grand variation coming. Um, and yeah, it was on the phone till about 6.30, 7 o'clock, which is a bit, bit annoying, but I think we got there in the end. But um, a lot of my job is just basically acting as a middleman between the contractor and the client discussing costs and project timelines and et cetera. 10% of contract value is not, um, not insignificant. Yeah, it's really not. And it's the first, we haven't even started putting pipe in the ground. It's all talking about the material before we even started basically. So uh, yeah, that was, that was a big one, but I'm, I'm lucky because a lot of my clients are, are nice and understanding. I've, we've had sometimes where this is, uh, situations where the client will, will get angry because of the cost when it's it's unforeseen. It's something we couldn't have helped. But uh, yeah, no, I'm pretty fortunate in the clients I've got at the moment are all are all pretty understanding and don't don't get upset with me or the project. Really, that's good. That's a good environment to be in. Um, yeah. The I think at, at when you're at school or when I was at school, certainly my understanding was that engineers deal with numbers and that um, engineering is all about maths and. You know, if you're good at maths, you should study engineering. But you, you haven't once mentioned numbers yet. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. well, I had the same understanding as well. I actually decided to study engineering and commerce basically because I love maths and, and physics and I, was, I, I like problem solving. And that's what led me to engineering. And studying engineering, it was a lot of maths. It was, um, yeah, some pretty, pretty full-on maths subjects, statistics and analysis and then once I started working, um, specifically my role, the most complex maths that I have to deal with is in Excel, like an Excel spreadsheet and using the, the sum formula or the average formula. So it's, it's pretty not very maths-based for me, but the designers in our office, they do uh, use, use maths. I'd say not complex maths, um, but, yeah, very amazing how different what I expected engineering to be uh, compared to what it, what it is. Uh, I think I use 
two or three of the subjects that I used, did at university, I actually use those skills in my job. I probably use more of my commerce degree than I do uh, my engineering degree in the engineering field, just based on numbers and budgets and uh, forecasting. I think that's an interesting point. I really want to come back to that in terms of talking about the the double degree and, and how you're using those skills in your job now. But something that I want to, to, to explore is your point just before about you, you find yourself being a mediator a lot of the time. Um, and that's not really something that you totally expected becoming an engineer. Like uh, we've got a, a friend who is currently working for quite a big developer in, in Melbourne. He talked about his graduate um, uh, training on the first day. They were basically put through like a, a situational um, simulator where they got actors to come in and actors, uh, you know, uh, really angry contractors or clients and they had to deal with that situation on site and make sure that they could be that mediator um, and make sure that the, the job got done. Was there any training for that? And I imagine it's quite, can be quite stressful. Like you, like you described yesterday. Um, I, I like, was that a subject in your engineering degree? Uh, I'd be yeah, surprised it, if it was. It, yeah, it wasn't. It really wasn't. They, they did. We did do one subject towards the end of my degree called contract management, where they spoke about different contract clauses and what the principal or the contractor were entitled under the contracts. Uh, but in terms of, mediating confrontation uh, you'd like to think that there wouldn't be much confrontation but there is uh, I've got a really good support network in terms of work at the people at work and uh, they have a lot of experience for this one of the people that I lean on for a lot of advice is I think he's 66 67 and he's he's sort of like the hulk of engineering like we call him because he just doesn't take any any crap from anyone and so every time I have a difficult situation I tend to give him a call and he helps me work through it and but yeah there's definitely been uh cases where it's been very very stressful I've, I've got one that I just thought of actually which might be worth mentioning there was this contractor who we obviously had a disagreed on a lot of things and we were lots of extras there were problems with program and the client was losing money because he had uh lots sold but couldn't settle on the properties because the works weren't finished and the contractor with obviously without naming names submitted an extra to us and i said well that's not not valid and uh basically stopped answering my calls and returning my emails but we still needed to keep on doing the project so i went out to site once uh to check up on what was happening and went over to talk to him and he was using a leaf blower to blow some leaves off the footpath and every time I tried to walk near him, he'd just blow the leaf blower at me and just said he couldn't hear me when I was trying to talk to him. Like a child, like an absolute child. And this is a 45, 50-year-old man, boss of a company. And I was gobsmacked at how, how he acted. So I ended up just leaving site and um, spoke to one of my directors and said, I can't even converse with this guy. And basically I was lucky, raised it up the chain and it was dealt with. But yeah, just surprising how immature some people can be. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting, interesting situation that job. And I think you can't. I'm, I'm not sure if you, you, you know, get a leaf blower blown at, blown at you in every industry, but I think you'll come across <laughs> people that are, and not for any fault of their own, like your personality and, and their personality might just not mesh in whatever environment it is. But I think it's it's inevitable that you'll come across someone that you don't get along with. Have you always been someone that? has dealt with those kind of, I guess, conflicts or, or confrontations well, or is that something that you've had to learn on the job? I feel like it's, I feel like 
the reason that I'm, I'm reasonably uh, good at my job, if I can say that, is because of my personality. I tend to get along well with people. I'm good at conversing with people, getting my point across and listening to other people's point of view. Uh, one of my really good friends who's actually my old housemate, he works for the same company that I work for and he's a designer and he's the complete opposite to me. Um, he says all the time he couldn't do what I do and I could never do what he does. So my role and the, the people in my team, we're all quite confident and enjoy talking. Like uh, we're, we're very personable and get along with a lot of people and I think that's really important in, in my role and a lot of civil engineers who are the on-site based engineers and project managers or contract administrators need that sort of personality. They need to be personable, likable and be able to um, adjust the way they speak to people really because you've got to read the tone of who you're speaking to, who you're dealing with and be able to, to meet them because some contractors are 50 years old concreters and rough, rough as guts and you need to be able to lift your voice to their voice sort of thing. Tone of voice is important because if I just sit there and cower away, they'll walk all over me and, yeah, it'll be a mess for the client. So I think it's important to be, yeah, confident and definitely for my role. Yeah, um, I think I think that's really good advice for people out there that you um, you don't need to, but it, it's very useful to be able to tailor your approach to whoever you're dealing with and be able to connect with them on that level. Like yeah, de- be- yeah, definitely. And I think the thing is, you don't have to be naturally comfortable with speak, speaking to people. You need to put yourself in that uncomfortable position sometimes, and practice will will help. Uh, I still do get nervous when there's a, a confrontational uh, conversation coming up, but I've definitely learned to cope with it a lot better. And I used to sort of put it off for two, three days before making a phone call to someone that I knew was going to be a difficult phone call. But the only way I'm going to get better at it is to actually do it. So on, on that, yeah. Zav, what, um, what tools do you use, if any, to, to help you deal with those um, confrontational situations where you do feel a little bit nervous? So I, I call. I probably call a, coll- a couple colleagues. There's a couple that I, I speak to daily, and I'll call them, explain to them the situation, and just talk through it. Sort of try and preempt what the other side of you is thinking, um, and I might take some notes and prepare myself for the conversation in that respect. I've found that talking it through with someone, even if they don't know the job or they don't know the role, just vocalising it and getting it out there can often help prepare me f- for that conversation. I think that's definitely something you can take at any stage in life, right? Yeah, like definitely. even if you're a high school student listening to that and you've, I don't know, you, you can apply it in your personal life even, you know, if you've got a tough conversation coming up, go and talk to someone about it, even practice it. It's not weird to practice conversations like that in front of the mirror or in the car or wherever you are um, because if you get in the habit of doing that and making sure that you're stepping out what is an important thing and doing your preparation for it, then it'll theoretically happen in, in a, better way for you and it'll go, go more to plan, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. Um, you only, you, you only get one shot at that conversation too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to make sure you're prepared and you don't make a fool of yourself. Otherwise you get leaf blowers blown in your face. <laughs> <It's not ideal. laughs> exactly. You don't want that happening more than once. Um, Zab, you mentioned in our chat previously that the bit about your job, particularly in, in land development, in civil engineering uh, that you really like is that you can also apply it outside of work. Do you want to run us through that uh, in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So as I was saying, the company that I work for do subdivisions. So it can be anything from a hundred lot 
per stage to two lots. Uh, so someone with a, a decent sized block and a backyard and they subdivide that and can put a second house on the back. And I really like the fact that what I do day to day, I can use outside to build my capital. So I, I bought a, I bought a property in, in Croydon, not far from our office and I've subdivided that. And in the backyard, I sold, sold that black up back block off and there's a builder at the moment building that house. So I, I'm really proud that I don't just have to, I don't just earn my wage from what I learn at the company. I can use it outside and, and build my wealth and build my capital. I have this uh, theory, which I think a lot of people agree with me that you don't build your wealth via your wage, you build it via building your capital outside of, outside of work. So to be able to do that uh, is, is really awesome. And the company that I work for really encourage it. They, they'll help you, they'll, they'll guide you through it, even to the point where they helped us organise a, a group of us. There are about 20, 22 of us that each put in a little bit of money and we've done a subdivision uh, out in several. There's, I think, seven lots out there. So we did a seven-lot subdivision. It's finishing up pretty soon, so hopefully we'll all get a decent return out of that. But just an experience that working at another company probably probably wouldn't have gotten. So really, yeah. Really happy that we're able to do that. I think it's a great point and something that I don't think a lot of people think about. I certainly didn't um, when I was going through university or, you know, choosing what uh, industry I wanted to go into as a, as a job. But it's certainly something that I think should be worked into the kind of market research on, on that point is that if you get into a job, whatever that might be, you're learning a skill, right? And it, it should be or it, it should be something that comes to the front of mind. It's like how can I use this skill outside of the job, like you said, to build capital. And that can come into any, through any kind of example, right? So say you're doing a journalism degree and you end up being a journalist thinking about, okay, how can I write and report on stuff? You might be able to go and write a book or start your own blog. Or, um, you know, if you're going to become a consultant in a, in a, in a big four or a lawyer in, in a law firm, you might, you might be able to go on and become a director of a company outside of your immediate work. So it's something to certainly think about what are you learning in your role as insert title um, that can be applied elsewhere to, as you say, build capital and do other productive things outside of that nine till nine till I was going to say nine till five, but nine till eight <laughs> for most people <laughs> these days. Yeah, definitely. I think not many people do think about that, but uh, I wouldn't say base your decision as to what job you want in terms of making sure that you can use that skill set outside of work. But I think it's an interesting point to think about what, what, opportunities can you find outside of your nine to five uh, using the skill set? Definitely. Uh, I, I think on that too, that's a, it's a real, well, it's a fantastic way to actually demonstrate you understand what you're doing and you, you're getting what you're doing. And that's not to say that working in your work environment with your team is a bad place to be because it's not. And that's where you learn. But it's like, if you can go out and do it yourself and actually think about it and say, Oh, hang on. Like what do I, what do I actually doing? I think that's a really fantastic way to solidify your learning at work too. Yeah, it's actually made me a lot better at my job learning or understanding the client side of things. So now that I see what's involved in the actual works for a little two-lot subdivision and what the client has to deal with and has to pay for and has to sign off and agree to, it's really it's made me better at my day-to-day job understanding the other side of things. So I think it's yeah, it works both ways. Mate, I think that's really interesting actually understanding what a civil engineer does and, and that it can be so diverse. Like you said that you're working on the, the residential more um, 
uh, sorry, you buy, buy land and home packages and, and things yeah. like that. But you touched on that there's different styles of projects too, um, which I think is a good point for people thinking about going into certain industries, be that, you know, whatever management con- consulting or, or going into law or going into engineering or a- anything really marketing. Um, it's important to know that just because that industry or that role has a label on it doesn't mean that everyone with that label does the same thing. Like there's different, way different, uh, a lot of different nuances within particular roles. So it's, I think it's important to go and talk to people and understand what, what they do day to day. There definitely are. I've got out of the sort of four or five mates that I'm still close with from my degree, we all do such different things. One of them basically concentrates on facades, steel facades of huge sky rise buildings, basically. That's his specialty and that's what he does day in, day out. I would have no idea how to order a steel a steel beam for a facade and we did the same degree. Uh, I've got one friend who looks, manages and designs huge gas pipelines through the centre of Australia. Um, she gets to go out on helicopters to, to have a look at the, um, the rigs, which uh, yeah, absolutely amuses uh is astonishing to me like it's amazing she gets helicopters every month to go out and look at these rigs and yeah we did the same degree but so so different um and then i've got a, my brother-in-law builds train stations so yeah they they the tra- train lines concrete steel structures and yeah all civil engineering but but very different hmm. on that i think that's a good segue into how you got into into civil civil engineering rather through um, your university studies and even further before that in, into high school, put yourself back in you know year eleven, year twelve, or even before that year ten. You're choosing subjects to to get it, to do your VCE, and then after that, putting in your preferences for university. What were you interested in back then, and what were driving the decisions you made in terms of what subjects you were you were choosing? Yeah, so I think there was a couple aspects that I took into consideration. One was doing what I enjoyed, which was maths, problem solving, um, which, which led me to do methods and physics. And then the advice that I was sort of given was tr- be strategic about the subjects you choose and get subjects that would get marked up heaps even if you don't like them. Now, I listened to that, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, can say that that's the best idea. I did, For example, I did chemistry. I hated chemistry my whole schooling life but I ended up doing it in year 12 because people said oh it gets marked up heaps and it's really good to have on to do so I ended up basically not doing any chemistry work in year 12 and almost failing that subject but I put a lot of effort into the subjects I enjoyed so I think it's a it's a careful balance because I know some some friends who went with what they really enjoyed and all their subjects got marked down and that made it harder for them to get into what they wanted to at uni. So I think I always wanted to do maths. I always had the idea of engineering, but I wasn't sure. I knew it had to do with numbers. Um, So again, I think chemistry was the only one I didn't like. I did languages as well. I did Italian because I've I've got my background's Italian and I I spent a couple of years living in Italy when I was younger. So I was lucky in that respect to do a subject that I found pretty easy and did pretty well in. Um, And then when it came to year 12, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had the idea of engineering because I've got basically both my uncles are engineers. My dad was an engineer. Um, So it's definitely in the family, but that's not necessarily what I wanted to do. But I knew I liked the idea of problem solving. Um, 
I also like the idea of the stock exchange and business and, um, I know you hear big mergers, mergers and acquisitions and audit and just to me that sounds exciting. I know it's boring to some people, but it sounded exciting to me. So I was tossing up between commerce and engineering and then, yeah, basically was was lucky enough to be able to do both given given the scores that, that I got. So I still didn't know what I wanted to do after uni, uh, even fourth year, fifth year uni, I only fell into the role that I'm in now in terms of getting that uh, work experience. Otherwise, who knows, I was thinking of applying at the big four accounting firms and trying to get a role in audit or, or accounting. But um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really know until the last year of uni that's that I wanted, what I wanted to do after uni. But uh, yeah. On that, I think it's really an interesting point and something that a lot of us experience when you, uh, in any uh, length of, of degree, it's like, I, I don't know what I want to do until you're yeah. kind of forced to choose. Yeah. Um, but choosing to do a degree that is five years at, at its shortest, maybe six, maybe seven, if you do it yeah. part time, that's a big chunk of your life. And it's a big decision to make to say, yeah, I'm going to go and do that double degree instead of saying doing straight commerce, if you're interested in that, and that's only three years and you get out. Um, did you give any thought to that? And if you did, did it uh, kind of live up to the expectations of, you know, gave me more time at uni to, to have more opportunities and, and things like that. Um, and what would you, what would you say to someone that's considering the double versus the, the single degree? I love the idea of the double because it kept my options open and understanding that it would probably be an extra year or two at university. I didn't really, that didn't worry me at all. Uh, uni life is is fun. I, I enjoyed it. I was fortunate enough to be able to live at home and didn't have too many worries. But uh, yeah, I liked it because it really did keep my options open, especially the commerce degree. It's so, it's just, yeah, you can basically do a lot with that, with the commerce degree. And like I said, I, I probably use what I learned in my commerce degree more uh, than I do my engineering. And I spoke to, I actually spoke to someone in HR at a big civil engineering company when I was sort of tossing up what to do. And they said that the commerce engineering double is really sought after for project managers in the engineering and construction field, because it doesn't just give you the technical understanding, but it teaches you how to run money. And um, so that's really, that's why it really led me to that. And I think as I've seen just recently with, with my cousin who's just started university, he's doing a double in music and science. He had no idea what he wanted to do, but, uh, and he was tossing up between the two. And I sort of said, oh, why don't you just do both? And if you like one more than the other, and you, you can drop one. And that's what he ended up doing. So yeah, he's lost a semester, which is six months, but he gave it a go. Doesn't like the uni side, but loves the science side. So. I would always say if you can give it a go and don't feel you have to stick it out. I know that there's there's a uh, obviously cost implications and time implications, but in the scheme of things, might as well give it a go. I, I, I enjoyed it and I thought it really kept my options open. On that example with the uh, your was it your brother or your nephew my cousin. cousin sorry um, who chose to to do one of one of that half of musical science after the six months like my perspective on that it's it's not really a loss of six months right like you've chosen to test one of them and say if you'd only done one of them but you'd chosen the one that you decided to drop you'd be in a course for three or four years that you hated so it's almost a, a positive thing that you've tested it for only six months and then exactly. you know you know that you don't like it and then you can move on 
I agree. Making that decision and saying, oh, I really don't like this half, but I gave it a go because mm. you're right. He could have made the wrong choice from the start and stuck it out for three years and, and lost three years. So, yeah, I'd always say if you've got the opportunity to give, give it a go. On, on that, Sav, you, you're, a, you're in more of a project management role at Miller and Merrigan now. Um, what was like, what, what do you start as when you, when you go in as a grad? So when I started, I was doing sort of the, it's not too dissimilar to what I do now really, uh, but I'd get the, the plans if I'm going to get go into the detail. I'd get the plans from the designers, for example, and then I would create a schedule on Excel, which says how many meters of pipe how many pits, how much square area of road, whatnot. And then the guys above me would then run the contract and I would sort of just assist them. And for the first two, three years, I would be going out to site with someone, with my, with a senior and watch what they did. Look at what they checked, depth of concrete, quality of rock. And they would, they would talk me through it. So a lot of it was just following them and I'd get the, I guess the paperwork in the office, uh, sort of side of things. I'd also do a couple designs. So we'd get told instead of a a hundred lot subdivision design, I might have to design 50 meters of water main. And so I'd get given the outline and get told, this is the standards. These are the codes you got to follow. You got to read through the different, the different areas, depending on what part of the water design you're doing. Um, But there was a lot of support and a lot of handholding, I guess, which is, is needed when you first come out of uni um but it went quick like it really it wasn't long before i was running my own projects and and really had a bit of freedom to do to run the project how how i wanted yeah before and before the show we're chatting a little bit about how um you wished you you'd got a bit more into the detail when you were more junior um can you just talk talk to that a little bit so i guess it was, I thought it was awesome at the start, but the, one of the positives about the company I work for is it really allows you, they really allow you to grow um, at your own pace in terms of, I really wanted to build my way up and start running my own project straight away. So every opportunity I got to take on a project myself and, and run the construction supervision alone, I did that. Uh, I didn't spend much time in design. They really said to me at the start, what do you want to do? Do you want to do a little bit more design? Do you want a little bit more construction? And I just thought that going out on site was fun and running projects and dealing with contracts and and liaising with the client direct was sort of the glory. So I sort of went straight for that and tried to build my way up and, and uh, get better at that side of things and forgot about the technical design aspect. So yes, I could probably do a detailed design now, but not to the extent that I would have liked to. So I sort of rushed rushed into things a bit. And after a year, I wasn't doing any more designs. I was solely construction supervision and contract administration. Whereas I see a couple of the younger guys coming through now construction that did probably two years of the designs and they just have a much better technical understanding of things than I do. So if I had my time again, I'd probably put a little bit more time into design. I've tried to dip my toe back into it, but it's hard at the moment because design is a, is very time consuming. So you sort of got to be all in or not at all. So yeah, if I had to do it differently, I'd probably yeah concentrate on that and try not to get too ahead of myself, which I think I did and I've caught up to myself, but I definitely, yeah, thought, thought I was more ahead than I was at the time. 
I think a lot of us fall into that bucket in terms of anything that we're doing, right? It's like you get into something and you're like, I want to be, I want to be there in, you know, the normal times, probably five years, but I want it now. So what what can I do to get that? And I think it's a really good point. um, Your reflection on the fact that, oh no, actually there's really important things that you don't want to miss along those, that timeline. And you can't just go and read a book and and chuck it in your head. Like you actually need to be doing it. So um, I think that's really a good perspective for, for people to, to hear. Um, Mate, just jumping back to while you're at uni, I know a big point of that time is to get some experience in in industry in terms of whatever degree you're doing um, or or study you're doing. What did that look like for you in terms of, I know you did the internship at CPD. CPB. um, CPB now. Um, So that was an internship. Why don't you step us through that and then what that road looked like to where you are now at Miller Merrigan? So I've been, I guess, really fortunate in the opportunities I've had uh, because I was the kind of person and still am the kind of person that isn't afraid to pick up a phone and call someone that I've met once 10 years ago uh, just to have a chat or to ask for some advice. Or ask I, them to come on a podcast. Or, yeah, or ask them to come on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, like, you, like you guys did. Um, and I know some people sort of shy away from that, but I had a friend who's father was in HR at CPB and I called him one day just asking for some advice. I was putting together my CV, uh, looking for some experience because at the time you needed to have 12 weeks of work experience to be able to graduate in civil engineering. Uh, that keeps changing because of the availability of work. Sometimes they, some years they cancel it and some years they bring it back in. Uh, but I, I started to put that together and I gave him a call like I said, just asking for advice and saying, if, if you guys ever need anything, let me know. And the next week, I think I got a call on the Friday or the Saturday and he said, oh, are you able to come in Monday? Like I didn't, hadn't even put in an application. Like it wasn't even on my radar. And he just said, oh, they're putting together a huge tender for a government job and they need someone to help them put all the paperwork together, the designs, the schedules, um, yeah, they'd be more than happy to have you on board for three, four weeks. Of course, I said I said yes. It was over the the middle year holidays, um, and yeah, I was really lucky. And it was just because I'd made a phone call to ask for advice. It wasn't necessarily I asked him for a job because I, I didn't even think of it at that stage. So that was that was an awesome experience. And while I was there, I was there for only a month, um, and the idea was I'd probably stay on after that. And while I was there, another uh, nugget of reasonable luck fell in my lap by I was speaking to my soccer coach. I played soccer for um, Old Kerry, funnily enough, uh, Burundara Soccer Club. And I was speaking to my soccer coach, telling him that I was studying engineering and I was just started doing some work at uh, CPB as a, some, for some experience. And turns out he was one of the shareholders at the company I'm at now, Mill American. And he told me what they did. And I said, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. Do you reckon I can come there? He's like, yeah, not a problem. I can probably set, set something up in two weeks. So I was pretty, I had to make a decision then and there whether I was to keep going on my, with my experience at CPB or jump over and, and do a couple of weeks experience at Mill American. And I made the decision to, to jump over to Mill American because I, it sounded more interesting and the tender that was happening at CPB was sort of finishing up. So I, I had a chat with the, the boss who was looking after me and told him straight up, look, I'm going to go try this, but 
I'd love the opportunity to come back here if you guys ever get really busy again. Obviously, I was still at uni, so I couldn't really work full time yet. And then, yeah, went over to Mill Merrigan for three weeks and haven't left. Just went down to two days a week once uni started back up and was two days a week uh, all the way through until I finished uni and walked into my boss's office a week before I finished uni and said, I've got an exam next week, so I can't come in on whatever the day I was working. Um, and I said, but after that, what do you want? Like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to keep coming in? Do you want me to come in more? And he was shocked that I even asked it basically and said, Oh, I was just expecting you'd go full time after that. So yeah, it was luck, lucky enough and went full time straight after my last exam, which was, which was awesome. With that, I think you've said the word lucky a lot. And, uh, you know, if if you write down that experience on paper, sure, it sounds like stuff just happened for you. And obviously, you have to work hard for it. But, you know, you met the guy at the soccer club, and that's how you got a job and you haven't left there now. But one thing that we've spoken to people a lot on this podcast so far is about the importance of increasing your own likelihood for things like that to happen. Um, And that can take any form I think and and it can be things like you know getting involved in your local soccer club or your footy club um, or going and getting multiple part-time jobs at a place that um, I I don't know is a bar or a cafe where you can talk to clients and get to know them or customers rather than get to get to know them um, and just meet more people because just you know playing playing the game of chance or probability the more people you know and the more people you talk to about what you're doing the higher the likelihood is that you'll meet someone like that shareholder at Mill American and something like that will happen. So um, I think it's important just to, to point out that if you hear that story once, you're like, oh, that guy just got lucky. But no, you, you put yourself out there and yeah, sure, you did get lucky. But I think that that was a byproduct of, of you making sure that that could happen. Funny you say that because I have a real problem with people using the word lucky. And I've obviously just realized I've used it a lot in this conversation. But I genuinely believe you make your own luck. And I almost get offended sometimes when people say, oh, yeah, but you're lucky uh, for one reason or another. I said, well, yes, but I've, I've worked my ass off to get to that point. So whether that, as an example, I'm doing some some development on, on my house and I got I made a comment a couple of months ago about, oh, yeah, you're lucky that you've, you've got your own house. And I said, well, lucky. I don't know if lucky is the right word. Like I've worked my ass off and – I spend every every weekend renovating my house and yeah, when I sell it, it'll be a, a good project, but it's not luck. So I appreciate you correcting me because I, I do I don't like the use of that word because I believe you make your own luck and and putting yourself out there, talking to people, uh, networking, it's it, it's not luck because you're there because you put yourself in that position and you meet these people and you talk to these people because of your actions. So no, I definitely agree with you. Absolutely. I think you're, I think we all um, have the same views on luck and that we ultimately make it, make it ourselves. Yeah, definitely. On, on that, on that note, um, Zav, do you, what advice um, would you give yourself looking back um, that you might not have actually listened to when you were younger? Well, this, the, what I touched on earlier in terms of the technical aspect of things, my uncle always said to me, don't get ahead of yourself. Learn the intricate details of the field that you're in before trying to run projects. So that's definitely advice that was told to me, but I didn't. I didn't listen to it. Um, trying to, 
I don't know. Once I started to work, I really tried to grow up too fast. I, I bought the house as soon as I could. I've been spending a lot of time doing renovations on my house and most weekends I yeah, paint or plaster or rip two floors and um, I don't know if I'd, I'd change it at all but I would definitely say to some people don't be afraid to enjoy your time at uni and really get involved in all the social aspects. So I was lucky enough to meet Luke at through through Deacon social clubs and had a great time at a lot of those parties. Um, I've spoken to some people that didn't get involved in the clubs and the social side of things at uni and it sounds like they really regretted it. So I'm happy that I, I did get involved in that. And I would take uni not just as an opportunity to learn but to have fun and meet people. And I've got a group of, like I was saying, about four or five mates that we actually catch up every two months because otherwise from uni, um, every two months we have a dinner, we actually set an agenda and someone takes minutes and it's, it's a bit of a bit of a fun night. And we all talk about engineering basically. Um, so yeah, the people that I met and have become close with through uni was awesome. So I'd just say, yeah, don't think of uni just as an opportunity to learn, but yeah, enjoy it and meet, meet a lot of people. I think that's super advice and I really like your holistic approach to uni in, in that, that there's so much more to it than just going there to learn um, because I, I think that's so true. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Zav, um, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been fantastic hearing about um, what, what you're doing at Miller Merrigan and how you got there. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. I appreciate the time, mate. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.